Global Governance Futures is brought to you from the Global Governance Institute at University College London. This is a podcast about the challenges facing humanity and possible global responses. How does the world hang together? What has gone wrong? And what has global governance got to do with it? To learn more, please visit ucl.ac.uk forward slash global dash governance. Ever have that feeling that there's more to what's going on than meets the eye? Well, for our guest on this episode, Nate Hagens, the missing piece of the puzzle, whether we're looking at the economy, politics, society or culture, is energy. To put it bluntly, Nate argues that our society is energy blind and that this blind spot now poses a clear and present danger to our collective futures. He presents a compelling picture of the unprecedented economic contraction now barreling towards us as the industrial age of abundant cheap energy comes to an end. Nate asks us to consider the possibility that we are already living through the end of cheap fossil hydrocarbons, that the much-touted green technological fixes are not going to cut it, and that unless we simplify our Western lifestyles radically to align ideas of human well-being with the declining surplus energy available to us, we risk stumbling into the worst of all possible outcomes. Anyone paying attention to this has to understand there is a non negligible chance of a Seneca cliff type collapse. I just don't think it's the most likely scenario in the next 20 years. I prefer to say what's coming is a great simplification, which is kind of a rolling depression economically, but it doesn't have to be a depression for individuals and communities. This is Imperfect Utopias or Bust Global Governance Futures. Nate Hagens is the director of the Institute for the Study of Energy and Our Future, an organization focused on educating and preparing society for the coming energy transition. He also hosts The Great Simplification, a podcast exploring the system science underpinning the human predicament. We spoke with him in May 2022. My question to you as someone who is in this, the sort of energy blind space, peak oil space, resilience space. Uh, it's been quite a quite a roller coaster for me getting to grips with this material, you know, and finding people out there who can, in a sense, mentor me into into this this domain. People like Richard Heinberg. Uh, I read William R. Catton's Overshoot uh, last year, I think. And yourself, all your fantastic videos and and books and resources. And it's it, as you say, the culture is it's reality blind or energy blind but once you once you see it you you can't really unsee it and what i really appreciate about your 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 videos is that you make it super concrete so as you said in in your recent earth day reading we assign the same economic value to a cappuccino as we do to a a a gallon of gasoline when, in fact, a gallon of gasoline produces the same caloric output as a man working for two months. So I was curious to ask Nate, perhaps kick us off. You know, what was your journey? Tell us a bit about how you woke up to, to our energy reality. Yeah. Um, great to be here, Tom uh, and Tom and Sam. I worked on Wall Street Um when I graduated uh, business school, I wanted to make a lot of money so that I could afford a better car and a better apartment and uh, impress uh, the uh, women in Chicago and New York City. And 
I started being a stockbroker for billionaires. I was a high net worth stockbroker. And one of my clients was trading oil futures. And he had me, I, I was trying to do due diligence. So I started to read about oil. And the more I read, the more concerned I got, not about the near term, but that oil is the uh, lifeblood of modern civilization and that it would peak and start to have less every year during my lifetime. And that led me to reading books about ecology uh, and energy's uh, role in nature and how energy has always underpinned human societies. And I started to learn about climate change and about externalities, things that are happening that aren't priced into the products that we uh, buy every day. And I got so obsessed that I was reading books about ecology, neuroscience, systems, energy. Um, and I started to do less well at my job, uh, which was managing money and, and pitching ideas to these families. And so uh, I gave my clients their money back and I got a backpack full of books and my golden retriever. And we went out West and, and backpacked and uh, read and thought for seven months. Uh, and then I went I, I decided since I was going to be doing reading on the human predicament full time, I might as well go back and get a PhD. Uh, so I did that. Um, and pretty much for the last 20 years, Tom, I've been um, amassing understanding, but also relationships with top scientists uh, in the fields of energy depletion, climate change, biodiversity, um, economics, uh, uh, debt, and, and how the, the, the story fits together. And I think we live in a society that rewards reductionist expertise, that you become an expert on one thing, and then that carves out your niche, and that's how you get rewarded. When our world is now so complex and we have to have more generalists that understand that we live as part of a system and that the pieces fit together. And there is an overarching story of how everything fits together. And we're all part of that story. And I think we have to start changing our understanding, our behaviors, and our cultural conversations around it. So for the last 20 years, that's what I've been doing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think one one of the key blind spots, uh, for me at least, was not having a really clear understanding of like the very basics, like the very physical base, basics, like the, the, the laws of thermodynamics, for example. We're not taught that at school, which when you begin to sort of understand the implications of those three laws for basically everything, it's kind of a shock to realize that we have these enormous blind spots and indeed... You know, it's it wouldn't be difficult to reconfigure education to address those blind spots, but it seems as if there's very little appetite to do so. I mean, was it a real shock for you to sort of really come up against the, the this this reality, which is almost like a shadow reality to the one or the world that most people live live in? Well, what you said earlier, uh, that once you see these things, you can't unsee them. Um, the last eight years, I've taught a class at the University of Minnesota called Reality 101, a survey of the human predicament. But I almost called it 
um, things you've always known, but never knew that you knew. And I thought that was too silly of a title, but these things are, are actually common sense, but we have lived, you and I have been on this planet in this anomaly, this unbelievably unique period where we are, um, one of the richest societies ever to live in the known universe but we ascribe our, our riches and our productivity and our wealth pretty much solely to human cleverness and technology. And the reality is technology, energy, and materials are symbiotic and you need all three. And we've been alive at this time where we're adding more and more energy every year to the human system. And it's been unbelievably cheap, but this is, like the math of why this is so profound one barrel of oil which currently is around a hundred dollars and it costs us sixty dollars to get it out of the ground that's the extraction cost one barrel of oil has 5.7 million british thermal units worth of energy if you translate that to work potential it's 1760 kilowatt hours of work potential you or I or your graduate students working nine-hour days, physical labor will generate 0.6 kilowatt hours worth of energy in a workday. So if you do the math, that equates to around 11 years of human labor is substituted by one barrel of oil, which we pay $100 for. Now, humans are more... Um, efficient in directing our muscle labor towards work than oil is. So you have to handicap that down. And the math works out to one barrel of oil works out to about five years of my labor. The human economy every year uses 100 billion barrels of oil, coal and natural gas converted to oil. So a hundred billion barrels of oil equivalent at five years of human labor per barrel. And we have a de facto army of 500 billion fossil workers that are added to our real human labor force of around 5 billion working age humans on the planet. And our economic system, our financial universities, and I have an MBA in finance, never mentioned that. It's not included in macroeconomics textbooks. Getting back to your cappuccino example, it's because we only count as the input the cost of extracting it. So we treat that $60 that it takes to get it out of the ground. That's our economic input. We ignore the fact that it took tens of millions of years of daily trickle charge of photosynthesis because oil is, is dead sea creatures. It's phytoplankton that existed, died, and was buried beneath the ocean. So 99% of the oil we extract today is from areas that used to be ancient oceans. And the geology of the world has moved around over hundreds of millions of years. So, you know, North Dakota in the United States has a lot of oil deposits. The North Sea, uh, still a sea there. So we are only extracting 
um, we're only paying for the cost of extraction, not the cost of creation, nor the cost of pollution, because as we burn this, there is uh, an immediate heating effect and a CO2 as a waste product effect that is being absorbed by the biosphere and increasingly the oceans. Um, so we don't pay the true cost of the main input that is supporting our societies, not the replacement cost, nor the impact that it has on our environment. So this is like an unbelievable, profound time to be alive because we are, by all measures, midway or even past midway through the carbon pulse which is the one time few hundred year period where we're drawing down Earth's energy battery 10 million times faster than it was sequestered. This is not taught in our universities, partially because um, it's easier to tell these stories about technology and human cleverness as being responsible for our largesse and our living standards. But it's all on the backs of fossil energy and materials. We also have copper and lithium and water and sand and things that are non-renewable on human time scales that are that are being added to this picture and the whole thing is growing and has grown at 2.8 percent a year or so and what other people don't recognize is there's an incredibly tight linkage between economic growth globally and energy and material use. We do get efficient over time. New technology and new creative ways of using energy means that we can use a little bit less energy to get the same economic output. But over the last 50 years, the relationship is around 0.99 to one. So every new uh, unit of GDP, we need 0.99 units of new energy. With materials, it's one for one. If you wanna grow something by 100 units in GDP, we're going to need 100 units of, of materials. So what people don't acknowledge, even in the climate um, uh, circles, is that our economic institutions, our governments around the world, implicitly or explicitly assume that we will continue to grow at 25 to 3% a year well into the future, perpetually into the future. And if this, this is, um, so no, I just wanted to, to add, I mean, this is, this is pretty, pretty controversial, right? In the mainstream, uh, you've got the physicist, is it Tim Garrett, I believe, who basically has argued that the data's in and it shows that improving energy efficiency actually accelerates uh, CO2 emissions growth. And, and Tim Garrett argues that the only way to stabilize emissions is to collapse the global economy, which I suppose explains why the claim is controversial. Well, that's a separate issue. Um, let me finish the point I was about to make, and then I'll address what you're talking about with, uh, with the Garrett relation. If we grow our economy the way that governments expect at 25 to 3% a year, we will double the amount of energy and materials that um, the world consumes today in the next 25 years. And we will double it again the 25 years after that. So in the lifetime of your graduate students on this call, the global economy will be four times bigger than it is today 
in terms of energy and material throughput by the time they're 80 years old. Uh, is that possible? Is that desirable? What are the impacts if that happens? What are the impacts if that doesn't happen? Are central questions. Now, getting back to um, Tim Garrett's work, he talks about the rebound effect or Jevons paradox, which is that if we get more efficient at something, people think that saves our bacon and that we'll use less. But if we look at a systems perspective, that savings ends up being rebounded. For example, if we developed a new air conditioner that used half as much energy to get the same amount of cool, all of a sudden you would think, oh my gosh, that's great for climate change because we're going to burn half as much coal to get the same amount of air conditioning. Well, more people will buy air conditioners. Some people will buy two air conditioners. In my place, I might not need another air conditioner, but the money that I save on that, I will go and buy some other garden equipment for my lawnmower or something like that. So system-wide, the profits from efficiency get funneled back into more and more technology and more and more energy requirements the following year. So Tim's work shows, have you had Tim on your show? Not yet, no. Okay. I can introduce you to him if you'd like. Um, I disagree with his premise that we need a collapse uh, to, to stop this um, or to mitigate it. But Tim's work shows that if you show a graph of CO2, um, you can, uh, or if you show a graph of GDP in human systems, you can basically predict what uh, uh, the GDP is from from that there's an incredible correlation between human economic growth and co2 in effect my work shows that behaviorally we self-organize and maximize um, our behaviors according to our cultural dictates which aren't permanent but our current cultural dictates are we denominate our success in dollars and how much money we have in the bank or how much money we have access to. And so we all perform these micro decisions as individuals, as families, as small businesses, as corporations, as nation states. We're trying to optimize monetary representations of physical surplus profits. Those profits are tethered to energy, which is tethered to carbon. So I refer to this as the human superorganism, which is this emergent phenomenon that was not predicted by our individual behaviors, but metabolically, we are functioning like a dissipative structure that requires more and more energy every year. And I, my synthesis says that this is unlikely to uh, voluntarily change, but it's going to change when we run out of the uh, amount of energy and materials to support our current financial claims, if that makes sense. Mate, to someone listening or watching this and uh, hearing these kind of realities, there are often many responses, but one of them might be, yeah, it's tough, isn't it? You know, that kind of inability to feel like there's any agency involved in it or like, that's just the way it is, Nate. You know, I'm sorry about that. And what I find really interesting talking to people like yourself and other people we've had in these podcasts is that you're able to understand the problem and still work within that 
problem or that that predicament you know and what advice would you give to people tuning in who don't instantly just want to tune out because we have this uh, i thought it was really interesting one of the things you said earlier we have other examples of this for example we all know about the practices in the meat industry or, or, or how our phone gets its battery and we we know about these things and we just kind of go yeah it's tough isn't it and what how can people listen to this and and think and engage with it in a productive not productive but in a an honest and a useful way it's a great question sam uh and it's something that's been kind of the bane of my existence the last 20 years because this there's there's a trade-off between being accurate and honest and being helpful and i've found that this message the the human predicament writ large uh will never be popular and viral and uh discussed by everyone it's complex it's threatening it's in the future it's abstract the famous people in my tribe aren't talking about it there are no easy solutions and so for all those check boxes it, it won't be a popular conversation like you just said um and yet uh first of all for perspective we and you live in the uk and i live in the us um in the US, we use 100 times more energy than our bodies need in terms of physical calories. We use our bodies need 2000 calories a day, mine probably a little bit more than that. Um, but we consume two, 210,000 calories a day in our energy footprint of our airplanes and buses and hospitals and air conditioning and whatever. So there's a massive amount of energy decline that would still lead to vibrant, meaningful lives. We use twice the energy as people in Spain do. Spain has a better medical system than the United States. The well-being of people there is arguably better than a lot of people in America. So uh, that's the first thing. There are many benign and even wonderful possibilities still on the table. The, the, the next thing is we have to have this conversation. If you understand that uh, the human behavioral trait of time bias or steep discount rates means that we focus on the present and not the future, if you understand that deeply, you know that society is probably not going to en masse respond to these things until there's a crisis. So as individuals, we can uh, start having conversations with our friends, our networks, our community, and we don't have to know all the answers. Just merely talking about these things and building social relationships and networks is really helpful and important. Um, I think we are um, have a fiduciary responsibility to take these things seriously, which is why I'm still and presumably Tom and you guys are, are out talking about these things because the story is now, um, uh, the world is converging on this story. These things are no longer um, uh, tinfoil hat kind of conspiracies. Everyone understands climate change is a real thing. Everyone knows that inequality is, is posing a, a massive risk to our social fabric. Everyone knows that social media is creating more and more polarized uh, discussions in, in our populations. Fewer people realize that our living standards are dependent on ongoing infusions of cheap energy and materials. And even fewer people realize that 
our financial system is supported by those cheap energy and materials. So I think um, there's a uh, um, kind of a, a game theoretical um, uh, prisoner's dilemma here that the right thing to do as an individual is to ignore this. Um, but if we all ignore it, it's going to be a larger cost to all of us in the future. And personally, I um, hear these things about the superorganism and about climate change and the problems the global South faces. And sometimes I get discouraged and overwhelmed, but these things aren't impossible. They're just hard. And for me, the clarity that I get from uh, putting together the, the whole picture actually makes it more bearable than not knowing. And in my, in my class, Sam, a lot of students sign up for my class because they're worried about climate change and they didn't know about energy and these other things. And they tell me, they write me notes at the end of the semester is like, oh my God, I, I learned more scary things about the future than I ever imagined I would. But oddly, I feel enthused and motivated because I understand what's coming. And it makes it informs my decisions of my behaviors and my aspirations and even my friends, like who I choose to hang around with. So I may be naive, but I think the more we know about our situation, the more agency it gives us in our own lives. But it, we have to make hard decisions um, because the cultural marketing Madison Avenue is always there. It's the seriumon of, uh, of consumption. Um, this is, uh, you suck. If you buy this product, you'll be happier and better. And we have to have uh, psychological strength to resist those things. And one way to have that psychological strength is to have a network of people that understand and think like you do. And there is a strength in numbers. So one of my greatest hopes with my podcast and my work is that people in communities around the world start having these conversations and building a social fabric of uh, a reality-based future, as opposed to kind of this uh, this fantasy um, trajectory where, you know, we're going to get rid of all fossil fuels and continue to grow our economies and save the environment. I mean, those are nice stories, uh, but I, I don't think they're biophysically plausible. And I'm sorry, I'm giving you seven minute answers to your 30 second questions. No, no problem. No, no, it's a great seven minute answer uh, to the second question. And just to kind of follow up on that, I think one of the challenges I've, I've found is there's often that, that cliche of, you know, the more you, the more you know, the more unhappy you'll be kind of thing. And I think one of the challenges and in terms of building and not, that's not even just about kind of existential risks and, and all that, but one of the challenges I've found is, and it relates to your generalist point about how can we both understand the reality of the situation and still enjoy looking out at the sun and spending time with family and friends. And I think what, what you're talking about, about building that community, you know, if everyone understands the predicament, I think COVID was quite a useful micro example of, you know, everyone was living with the understanding of a pandemic and beautiful things came out of that and, and, and terrible things came out of that as well. But I think that's an interesting lens through which to look through kind of communities dealing with uh, a, a very big issue. Community is a big one. 
Um, I think the psychological art of compartmentalization is also important because um, we're living during a time where we're impacting Earth's environment more than it's ever been impacted. And if you really think about the implications of that, it can be daunting and, and depressing and sad, the impact we're having on the 10 million other species we share the planet with and unborn generations. It's appropriate to feel sad about that um, because it means you're a normal, uh, caring uh, human being. But the art of compartmentalizing means, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to think about that and talk about it with my friends and maybe we'll feel a little sad and I'm going to do read a little book on climate change here. But then I'm also going to plant a garden and I'm going to do my term paper. I'm going to finish my thesis. I'm going to go for a swim with my friends. I'm going to play with my dog. I'm going to go sit in nature. I'm going to read this uh, fiction book. We have to be able to do all the things that make us human but expand our boundary of empathy and concern because we're not alive at a normal time. The risk there is that you spend all the time in your life on focusing on one of the dark, scary aspects of our situation. And you have to be able to build up walls to be able to shut that off when you want to be a productive human being in, in other aspects of your life. It's, I'm going to jump in here. Sorry. Um, I kind of want to go back to the human superorganism. And what really struck me um, watching your Earth Day video was the way that you kind of described that, you know, it's 10 million years of like sunlight leads to basically fleetingly like wasted dopamine. You know, mm -hmm. we, we get all of this energy and, and then, you know, you play Candy Crush and it makes you happy for like five minutes and then you move on. And if we understood the real like energy impact of that, like, small bit of happiness that we get, maybe we wouldn't do that. But I guess what I wanted to ask you was, how does the, the current system are kind of chasing the short, like emotive highs? Like how, how does that relate to kind of our cognitive functions? You know, what, what biological functions of the human are we manipulating in the, in our economy in this way? Sorry. Yeah, that, that's an excellent question. Well, our economy is steered entirely by the financial system and billionaires and politicians right now are in thrall to the market system. We are optimizing all our decisions uh, according to the market's dictates, which obviates any uh, more responsible paths of wisdom or constraint can't compete with that. And in COVID, well, in the 2009 financial crisis, the central banks had to come to the rescue. In COVID, the central banks had to come in again because our financial system dictates the um, where the surplus monetary and energy goes to our societies. So we have to keep the system going or it will crash. Now, within that system, we have products that um, individually we purchase and those products give us a combination of supernormal stimuli, like uh, playing a, a game on our phones or playing Overwatch. When, when a young person is playing a, a video game like Fortnite or Overwatch, they might uh, uh, be, their brains might be thinking 
that they're on the savannah bagging an antelope and bringing it to their tribe and receiving status and accolades and respect and maybe higher mating opportunities but they're actually sitting on a couch in their mom's basement uh, accessing a cold fire server uh, to play those games so there's a big part of our economic system that gives us the same neurotransmitters of our successful ancestors while uh, doing something in our current environment that's incredibly novel and maybe not that productive uh, 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 via the future. And the problem there isn't just the, the um, ephemeral uh, microliters of dopamine that's wasted. The problem is that, especially with young people, we get more and more uh, limbically hijacked by short-term stimulation that we're checking our phones and we're doing all these things. And so our attention spans get shorter and shorter as our, our dopamine uh, neurochemistry uh, gets more hijacked. And the problem with that is for the things that the future is going to need, planting a garden and sitting in a community discussion, patiently listening to others, our attention spans are shrinking. Another core aspect of why we do these things is our cultural scorecard is money and uh, conspicuous consumption and flexing. Look at the car I have. Look at the brand name shoes. Look at this fancy watch I have. Those are signals in the same way in biology and nature. We're sending signals that we are a um, attractive mate to the other species and both sexes do this. So our culture actually promotes conspicuous consumption. Um, and I think that could change. I, mean, I think status is a core driver of us biologically, but status doesn't have to be measured by how much stuff we own or have or have access to. There's lots of examples in history where someone's status was based on their intelligence or kindness uh, or storytelling ability or the potlatch Indians in, in Washington state in, in America would throw lavish parties and give away things to other tribes and how generous they were was a sign of their status. But in our culture, uh, at least so far, and I think it's changing, especially with young people, is a bigger bank account and access to power um, has been the cultural carrot. I mean, could you imagine the behavioral change in our culture if all of a sudden um, women preferred men who were great gardeners? And that was the status thing. The 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 Rodal How to Grow Bigger Tomatoes books would be sold out at the bookstore by the, the end of the week. Um, so we can shift our cultural signals of what is uh, approved and sought after. But right now, most of that is is gadgets and displays that are incommensurate with a uh, less material intensive future. So do you think, therefore, it's about changing the inputs for the system that we have rather than changing the system as it is? So if we recalibrated our market civilization to value futurity and compassion and empathy in a way that potentially it doesn't now, could, would, would, is that a solution that we, we can pursue? Is it one that we should pursue? Or do you see a, a different solution to that predicament? I don't think we can change human behavior. Um, I think we can steer human behavior in better directions um, based on cultural and, and 
infrastructure signals. So I, I think it's unlikely that humans will choose to consume less, but we have underpaid, dramatically underpaid for the main resource that powers our economies for over a century. So if we were somehow able during a crisis, perhaps, um, remove all taxes on humans, 95% of the taxes right now are on humans and human corporations. And we remove all those taxes. You don't pay taxes, but you put a tax on all things that are non-renewable, not only fossil hydrocarbons, but copper and water and sand and, and things that are non-renewable on human timescales. What that would do is it would give more accurate price signals to people. Uh, this iPhone might be $3,000. So I would save my money to buy one and I would take really good care of it or I would share it with someone. Um, what that would do is it would um, at least two things. It would spur innovation uh, of the sort that uh, makes more sense rather than inventing gadgets that we just spin through and give us dopamine, we would actually be inventing and innovating towards a more realistic future. And the other thing it would spur is conservation. We wouldn't be just wasting this endowment uh, of fossil resources uh, for short-term rewards because the prices would be more realistic given their availability. I don't think this can happen just by voting it through because look at all the carbon taxes that have been attempted uh, and they almost always fail because people don't want to pay more for things. But if we do have this financial recalibration where the, um, the amount of financial claims we have on reality kind of retether to our existing reality, at that point, we actually could put in such a tax a structure uh, nationally, globally, it's a long shot, but I, I think something along those lines um, solves, doesn't solve, uh, reduces the severity of climate change and paves a way for a more realistic future. And it would also make renewable energy much more competitive because the biggest input in the cost of renewable energy is labor and labor wouldn't be taxed uh, the way it is now. So that that's one way we could do it. And we also need a, a, a cultural awakening that all this stuff, I mean, look at the United States, and I can speak to the USA. We're one of the richest nations in the history of the world. And most people are freaking miserable. So having more stuff as a society doesn't necessarily correlate with our well-being our aspirations, our meaning, and our experience of life. I mean, you guys are, are in your 20s. I'll just ask you, the, the, the five or 10 best memories of your life, you know, just think about that. How many of them were correlated with large expenditures of money or energy? And how many were correlated with your social interactions with your family or friends or nature or, or more simple things like food uh, and a party or whatever. So we, we're so rich as a nation, as a culture that we've uh, neglected the fact that after basic needs are met, which granted for a lot of people, they aren't, 
But after basic needs are met, the best things in life are free. So I think that the path forward is measuring our net worth has to change from being a financial metric to more of a holistic um, self-worth, our networks, our friends, our knowledge, our habits, our, our nature around where we live to more of a wider definition of what is our, our life worth and, and how do we measure our success? I think when we sort of take the temperature of the sort of the political debate around energy and climate change, um, it does seem quite shallow (laughs) and we're obviously wading into some pretty deep waters. And uh, I would be curious, Nate, to get your take on how do you connect energy and and politics. And this is a podcast on global governance futures, imperfect utopias. Uh, you were prominent in the peak oil debates of the early 2000s. And, you know, peak oil, it, it never seemed to arrive. Although I think people now, many observers uh, argue that peak oil did arrive finally in 2018. But are we, are we now living through the end of the era of cheap energy? And when we look at the political ramifications of that, you know, we've got oil at 100, over $100 a barrel. We've got uh, spiraling inflation. And we've got central banks that are se- essentially arguing that we have to increase interest rates in response to a supply side shock. So where are we right now? And when we think about bending, not breaking, in your terminology, in terms of transitioning towards the, the great simplification, um, are, we, are we departing from... You know, uh, the, uh, is is that a what are the viable pathways given the current situation that we find ourselves in? You have prepared for this podcast, Tom. Uh, thank you for watching uh, my videos and my materials because you've just summarized it nicely. There's a couple questions embedded in what you just asked. First of all, about oil and interest rates, and then I'll get back to the uh, the policy uh, governance part. Um, Conventional oil or the really cheap oil um, has been on a like a 15-year plateau. And mostly because of shale oil and some tar sands, we increased our oil uh, availability in the world uh, up until fourth quarter of 2018. Since then, it's been in decline. I think that will end up probably being the peak in global oil production. There's so much wasted ink and breath on when there is a peak, because even if it is a peak 10 years from now, 15 years from now, we will still have massive amounts of what in effect is fossil pixie dust added to our economies. The issue isn't that we're running out of oil. The issue is that do we have enough cheap oil to continue to grow a system that has an embedded growth imperative in it, because when we create money, we don't create the interest on the money. So there's an embedded growth imperative. So yes, I think um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine was um, kind of the phase shift that is going to make the world less energy blind, especially in Europe. People are understanding, even today, Italy is voting to agree to pay Russia um, in rubles uh, to get their oil and gas. Europe has a financial technology economy, but they import the majority of their energy. 
So energy is what underpins all those things. And we in our society apply, we add thousands to 10,000s of units of fossil energy coupled with machines to replace tasks that humans used to do manually or with draft labor. And because we add so many units of this cheap, cheap, cheap energy that boosts our economic efficiency massively. But since there's so many units added that when energy prices go up, like a doubling or a tripling, it has a huge impact on the cost of the goods produced and the profitability of those uh, industries. So some industries that are incredibly energy intensive, like aluminum smelting or concrete or air travel are really going to be struggling as we get into this era of higher cost energy. So I think that era is upon us. And of course, it's a uh, supply demand dynamic because we could uh, have much less oil which means that prices should go up. But if people's ability to afford the oil goes down faster than oil production, then actually the price goes down. But I think the combination of less ability to afford and less affordable oil means that economically, we will face tougher times than we're used to the last 20 years. And that's what I call the great simplification. Now, politically, you're right. This is um, uh, don't touch with a 10-foot pole sort of conversation because politicians in your country and in mine are focused on the short term. What are things right now that we need to do to help the people and get votes? And the story that I'm telling is way too threatening and complex to be taken on board by politicians. So what I've done and I continue to work on is the concept of advanced policy, which is those policies that are going to need to be developed, championed and executed, but that our political and social bodies are right now not remotely ready to take on board. And what that means is behind the scenes, you educate current and future leaders about ecology, energy, systems, money, growth, climate, and the leverage points so that you can anticipate things that might happen in the coming decade so that when those events arrive, you've got people that A, understand it, B, they have a little uh, a quiver of arrows in their toolkit. This is something we talked about back in 2023 that we could do to mitigate this situation because our this story is politically untouchable. Um, and yet, if you talk to a politician over a pint at the pub, um, it's hard for them to disagree with many of the things I've, I've been saying on this call. So I think in the governance standpoint, we're going to, and, and under the advanced policy umbrella, we're going to need new systems of governance nationally and globally. I don't know what that looks like, um, but it's going to be different than what we have now. And, and frankly, um, energy underpins all this stuff, but it's going to manifest in our real day-to-day -day lives as, as a political crisis because people on the left or the right have no plan for the things I'm discussing here. Um, that's a hard truth. Um, 
but that's why your work is is so important is to look at the universe of possible uh governance responses to this and breathe life and constituency and awareness into those possibilities i really will have to start drinking more down in westminster the, <laughs> the, the temperature down the pub uh, <laughs> so yeah in a way you know, having read into this now and sort of gone back to even so E.F. Schumacher's work, uh, Small is Beautiful in the 1970s, you know, people have been aware of this predicament for a long time. And I suppose if we had really moved in a concerted effort at that point, we would have more options available to us. But it's certainly uh, a relief to hear that people such as yourself are working and still see uh, viable angles, viable policy pathways that could at least ensure that um, that the the energy the, the the decline in a context of energy scarcity can be more of a cascade than a Seneca cliff the the key point there or the key phrase is it can be i think a collapse um well first of all you have to define collapse second of all Ocean fisheries, Syria, Ukraine, there are places that are collapsing right now. So if the, the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. Anyone paying attention to this has to understand there is a non-negligible chance of a Seneca cliff type collapse. I just don't think it's the most likely scenario in the next 20 years. I think we still have viable technology, a lot of energy and materials, we're just wasting it, expecting this future when it's going to be this future that's more likely. And um, so I prefer to say what's coming is a great simplification, which is kind of a rolling depression economically, but it doesn't have to be a depression for individuals and communities. Um, I, I think in the Great Depression in the 1930s, the peak to trough decline in GDP in the United States was 29.5% from the peak to the, the trough. I think something like that is, is coming our way in the next decade. And it's going to be chaotic and crazy. And there's going to be some horrible things and some beautiful things that emanate from that. Um, so when I teach young people, uh, the, the first thing is, kind of change your expectations of what makes you happy and what gives you meaning away from having a lot of stuff in a big house. And if you end up getting a job and you end up being rich, that's great. But your, your, your behaviors aren't predicated on needing that. Um, so you have to kind of simplify first and beat the rush. And it's hard to have a mental mind shift to do this, but I'm very worried about the future, but I also simultaneously uh, see the future as a bit of an adventure. Uh, but most importantly is what else could we be doing or talking about right now? This is the conversation of an era. This is the challenge of our species, really. We are the first of our species, Homo sapiens, to be capable of understanding all this stuff, where we came from, how we got here, what we're doing, what we have, what paths are possible in future governance. So I think, um, I think we have to play a role in that. And if you engage with it, it actually gives you a feeling of meaning and doing something beyond your own 
uh, existence and your own near-term dopamine, um, which is why I enjoy talking to people like you and, and Daniel, our mutual friend, uh, because you're you're on the 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 good team of of trying to work for better futures rather than ignoring it and and just uh, enjoying the day, which is a which is a viable option. And many days I choose. Uh, I, I choose to do that because I just have to take a knee and, and, and take a break. But then the next day I wake up and get back involved in this. Now, I think that, that leads into one of the questions, which I think maybe is run through the podcast. And we're also aware of your time. And so maybe we'll roll to a close with, with this one. But I think climate change, while it is an issue that we're all going to experience, it reveals a kind of inner issue that isn't climate change dependent. It could have been another crisis that might bring that about, which is the kind of purpose, life purpose of either the lowercase h human, as in just myself as an individual, or the uppercase h humanity. Um, and I think that's one of the real challenges, you know, of kind of what are we all doing this, whatever this is for, if not to make money and if not to X, Y, Z, and I think one of the, the 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 challenges that that great simplification brings up is that question of yeah, what are we actually doing this for? And I wondered maybe if so, to close, you could riff just a bit more on that. Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, so I have a couple responses. Um, we're an incredibly social species, and our two unifying. Um, aspirations the last few centuries have been religion uh, of its various types and economic growth economic growth and the belief in it and technology and the markets is a form of religion uh, it's a collective shared belief i think that and by the way climate change is probably the thing uh, global warming is probably the thing I care most about in the sense of what's happening to the 10 million other species we share this planet with, and will there be uh, viable ecosystems long after I'm gone? I think from a bird's eye perspective, climate change, uh, global warming is three orders of magnitude, the biggest uh, existential risk our species will, will face. But in the next decade, I don't even think it's in the top five. There are lots of other risks and climate change is a symptom of our problem. It is not the problem. The driver is this human behavioral superorganism drive for profits globally linked to energy. But I think a new way of viewing the natural world as sacred um, and recognition that we are on this spaceship Earth and there is nowhere else to go in the known universe and the the species and ecosystems that are part of your local environment in in the UK and where I live in Minnesota and globally that is the real treasure and I, I think ultimately I, I hope we can have a cultural shift of consciousness um, in in that direction um, because we need some some aspiration and some higher calling um to motivate us and one of the recommendations i give to my students who are around your age 
is I, I start out with a story about my co-author, DJ White, who runs an organization called Earth Trust. And when he was um, graduated college, he worked for <clears throat> a, an oil company in Indianapolis. He was a geologist. All he knew deep in his heart is that he loved dolphins and whales. But at that point, at 24 years old, there were no dolphins or whales in Indiana. So he bought a one-way ticket to Hawaii didn't have a job, volunteered to clean out dolphin poop in the aquarium and teach uh, high school. And he just took a step in the right direction. 15 years later, he was the single most effective environmental activist of our time. He stopped the drift nets in the ocean. He did the dolphin safe tuna and all other kinds of cetacean activism only because he took a step in the direction of something that felt true and important to him. And I think we, like you said earlier about the lack of perceived agency, this problem is so massive, it's bigger than all of us. And so I think um, we have to just take a step in a direction of something that's meaningful and important to us. And along the way, you're going to wend a path into something will happen that will bring you closer to something of meaning and import of, of your life uh, on this planet. And uh, I certainly am more of an expert on the problems and constraints that we face rather than what the answers are. Um, so I'm, I'm wending that path as well. Um, I uh, have no savings monetarily to speak of, um, but I get paid in things other than dollars, right? I get paid in conversations like this where I'm, I'm, having a communion of sorts with other homo sapiens on this planet that care about the same things. And that gives me a personal reward. That's not measured in dollars per se. So I, I do think ultimately we're going to need to have a cultural objective other than GDP, which is effectively just a measure of how much stuff we burn every quarter, every year, more tethered to, the well-being of our citizens and the well-being of nature. And I think that's that's a tough thing to do. Uh, but I think we have to head in that direction um, is my answer, Sam. Well, thank you so much, Nate, for joining us today. And as you say, it's uh, it's a change of mind state. Uh, and I guess this is going to be a, a sort of gradual process uh, perhaps one red pill at a time. Uh, hopefully this conversation will be valuable to to our audience uh, on, on that path. And certainly it's something I also try and convey in my teaching that, yeah, it's it can be pretty scary uh, looking out there, but it's also just an extraordinary time to be alive. And in a way, that challenge is a call to adventure as well, particularly if one can find your community. And we're also trying to build build community here. So it's really great to, to meet you. Look forward to continuing this conversation. Happy to be here. I enjoyed it. And uh, let's stay in touch. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Imperfect Utopias or Bust, Global Governance Futures. If you liked this content, please do leave us a comment and subscribe. If you're new to the show and you want to get a list of our favorite books, other resources, listen to past shows, and to join our community, go to ucl.ac.uk forward slash global dash governance.